0: Without some kind of moonshot-like effort, it's going to be really hard to solve for the health disparities and inequities that we're facing in a meaningful way in the coming decade.
1: Hello, healthcare. What's going to have the largest impact on healthcare strategy over the next 10 years? That's what Chris Bevelo and over 30 healthcare leaders at places like Geisinger and CVS endeavored to answer with their new book, Joe Public 2030 there are some startling insights, such as the idea that healthcare consumerism will actually contract. In this episode, we're going to focus on three other predictions, starting with the funnel wars, which is the idea on how big tech and retail are competing for people earlier in their healthcare journey. Then we'll go on to the rise of healthcare sectarianism, which is how people are politicizing their healthcare decisions today. And finally, disparity dystopia, which is the widening gap between the haves and the have-nots in healthcare. Let's take it to Chris, starting with the funnel wars. Consumer experiences, major disruptors in AI tech are shaping healthcare for years to come. On Hello Healthcare, we dive deep on these issues with leaders who are driving change. I'm Chris Hemphill, VP of Applied AI at Actium Health, and we hope that these stories will help you to create, or demand a better
0: future in healthcare. imagine it's 2030 and you're a 30-something living in chicago your main health relationship is not with the primary care doctor but with a team of providers at amazon health platform where all of your health is managed you could have chosen a partner with the similar offerings from apple cvs health or optum or even one of the niche providers like one medical but you like amazon's online experience better and how they cater your shopping choices to your personal health situation. You haven't been inside a hospital for years. A number of hospitals in the area have actually closed in the last few years. And if you do go, it's for something critical that can't be handled by Amazon's health stores, of which there are three within 10 minutes of you. Most of your friends have never been to a hospital, though you know your boss at work had to use one downtown for major surgery. Before you lived in Chicago, you lived in Erie, where your health provider was Geisinger. They offered all the same services and experiences as Amazon. You've heard there are other organizations out there like that, such as Kaiser Intermountain or Providence HCA. Old school systems with their own hospitals that seem to have figured things out. You can remember when there used to be a lot of hospital advertising here in Chicago, but they always seemed to be competing with each other, ignoring the new health players like Walmart or Best Buy. But now, here in Chicago, as well as many big cities across the U.S., Hospitals are just the last resort when you need serious care. And you turn to true partners like Optum, Amazon, and Apple to manage your health. They'll tell you which hospital to go to if you ever need one. Welcome to prediction three, the funnel wars. So really quickly, what do I mean by the funnel? We're talking about the acuity funnel. So think about the top of the funnel as health and wellness, or the initial ways that people enter the healthcare system, virtual care, emergent care, urgent care, retail care, and then typically they'll progress down to the mid-funnel, so that might be you know medical care, specialty care, surgical care, and then on down to tertiary and quaternary care. And what we have learned over the years from working with health systems is that while most folks are rightly focused on those volumes, those patient volumes in the middle of the funnel, because that's where the revenue and the margins are, the best way to build those is to fill the top of the funnel right it's a funnel you don't stick things through the side you pour them through the top right and this the funnel wars is all about all of these new entrants they're coming in with billions of dollars of investments behind them focusing right at that top of the funnel and if they're successful there they will divert patients away from you if you're a traditional or legacy hospital and health system and will come to own the patient relationship and the implications of that are actually quite profound Uh, this is a quote And I think it's phenomenal. And I'm gonna come back to this because I think it's a great way to kind of wrap up what's at stake here, particularly for legacy providers uh, and health systems. But this is from the head of brand at CVS. And it just really, I think, captures, it will capture when I explain it, why those of us, if we spend a lot of time in the legacy health system space, uh, are up against it. So, just a few things to keep in mind. You know, if you've been to a conference, if you've heard a keynote, if you've read articles for the past five years, you've probably gotten sick of hearing, hey, hospital and health system. Patients aren't just comparing your brands to other hospitals and health systems. They're comparing them to the best brands in their lives, like Apple and Amazon. Well, now they're not just comparing you to those brands. You as a legacy provider are competing with those brands. The top five companies in the Fortune 500, when you look at that list, two of them are completely healthcare. That's United and CVS. Three of them, which are Walmart, Apple, and Amazon, are all heavily, heavily invested in in coming in that top of the funnel. So you as a legacy health system are up against some of the biggest retail and tech giants in the country who want to own that space at the top of the funnel and who want to own the patient relationship to one degree or another. Then you've got all of the startups, all of the VC capital, all of the private equity opportunities, the startups, the One Medicals, the Oak Streets that are coming in. And they're primarily focused in primary care. They're focused in Medicare Advantage care. They're focused in urgent care, all to, virtual care, Teladoc. They're all up at the top of the funnel, right? You've got payers who are now, we just heard yesterday, I think it was yesterday, United wanting to buy a home health Company, Right. They're not the only ones. All of the major health plans have invested in provider side vertical integration. And when you talk about Optum as the largest of those, if you want to think about the largest health system in the country, if you use the metric of who has the most owned physicians to define that, that's Optum. That makes Optum the largest health system in this country as they have more than 55,000 employed physicians. So you're not only up against Apple and Amazon, you're also up against Optum, which is obviously uh, kind of a scary place to be. And when we talk to some of these experts that I mentioned earlier, It was astounding, I have to say, their feedback on this prediction. So for one, they said this isn't a question of whether this is going to happen. It will happen. It's just a question of where. They talk about it as kind of like a, if if this is the funnel wars, the battles will be fought market to market. And it will depend on the dynamics of a market, how legacy providers might do. But in some markets, you might see uh, health systems kind of shrink to what one of our folks called downstream vendors of care. B2B oriented organizations, no longer consumer brands because they would be so dependent on those patient relationships and and referrals coming from the Apples and the Walmarts and the Walgreens and anybody else who might own them. And so that obviously would be a huge deal. Hospitals will still be around, still a great place to, to run a business. If you're a downstream vendor of care, as one CEO put it, a giant ICU on the hill, because again, that's mid funnel business, right? But a lot smaller organization than a lot of health systems aspire to, and also the loss of a lot of control there. So that's a big issue. And then finally, if you think about the funnel wars and the two sides in the war, you've got legacy hospitals and health systems, and you've got all these new entrants, Battling for that top of the funnel. This is where it goes back to this quote from Russ Meyer at CBS Health. And he has spent his whole career working with huge, huge organizations, not just in healthcare, but otherwise, to change and transform their brands. So he's seen them try to transform themselves as organizations. And he says, from that experience, what I can tell you is when I look at the two sides in this war, I see legacy health systems having the advantage of all of the knowledge. They have the medical knowledge, they have the expertise, they have the physicians, they have all of that. That's what they're bringing to the war. The other side, what they have is a culture that is 1,000% focused on the consumer. Think about Apple, think about Amazon, think about Walgreens, that is their super super superpower, right? They said, I can tell you from my experience of watching brands for decades try to transform, it's far easier and quicker to acquire the knowledge you need To transform than it is to change a culture and so when you think about who's going to win the race at the the top of the funnel and win these funnel wars he would say those new entrants have the advantage because they can acquire just as we heard about united right they can acquire the clinical expertise faster than the legacy systems can become consumer oriented and that's what it's going to take to win at the top of the funnel and to potentially own that patient relationship.
1: Again, this was a live conversation. So the back and forth and questions and answers we got were from healthcare leaders just like you. And uh, we already got one from Ravi Bala, which was uh, how will these funnel wars show up in senior care?
0: Yeah, I mean, we see, gosh, I might get this wrong, but I know it's one of them. I think it's Cigna. It's Cigna or one of the other major health plans, and this is covered in the book, you know, investing significantly in long-term care as an example. So I think across the continuum, you see health plans is one example investing in this. Certainly Medicare Advantage is a really, really hot area for new entrants in terms of primary care. And there are some significant implications there for legacy providers. So our agency does a lot of work with health systems in terms of their payer negotiations and their relationships with health plans. And one of the things you can look at is is United really working with some of these primary care companies that are focused on Medicare Advantage, saying, hey, we're gonna put you at 100% risk. Here's a giant bag of money. You manage these relationships, and if you manage them to your benefit, you keep the money, right? And if you don't, obviously, you're out. But these companies, because they're focused on primary care, they don't have to worry about the rest of the, you know, the much riskier care that comes from a surgery or long-term, you know, kind of situations. That's a risk that they can take. That's not a risk that most legacy health systems can take, right? Because they can't go 100% at risk. I mean, most health systems struggle with any value-based care working out for them. They're, they're trying to get there, but there's no way they could go to 100% risk. And so that just means there's more incentive for these powers to pull folks through. And I think that goes for senior care, which was where Medicare Advantage would obviously come to play, home health. You name it. It leads into
1: another question too. We got
0: another one from Lori Schallenberger just asking about like
1: following up on the question about senior care with the pandemic and Internet of Things and uh, like with the changes brought on by that. How do you think that's changed their engagement at the top of the
0: funnel? That's a great question. You know, I don't know if that I can speak with authority on seniors specifically. I do think that nods a little bit to the first prediction, which, again, we covered in the last one, which is about the Copernican consumer and about more data coming to us consumers. And and some of that is almost, you know, self-service and managing in ourselves. But I don't know that there's a guy I follow named Scott Galloway. He's fantastic. He's a podcaster. He just put an article today and there's there's content on this in the book about we often think that uh, more choice is better. And there's a, a lot of conversation in the book about how actually, no, consumers don't necessarily want more choice. They just want, you know, relevant choice that's easy to understand. And so I don't know that the things that are coming forward, like the Internet of Things, you're certainly going to have more options at the top of the phone than you ever did before. Like we've all experienced that with just our COVID. If you've taken a COVID vaccine, I mean, I got my last one at, at High V, which is a grocery store, right? My first one at my provider, you can get them almost anywhere. So there are far more choices for that kind of thing. But I don't know that that necessarily makes it easier for people to manage their health. So I think that, and, and it's you get, and maybe this is stereotypical. I could think of my dad, who's 82 and had to shop for a Medicare Advantage plan. Boy, that was a trip trying to help him through that. Because it's very complicated to understand what are my choices out there, what is best for me. Of the twenty-seven Medicare Advantage plans he could actually opt into in his market here in the Twin Cities, only two were appropriate for him because they had his provider. So uh, it's tough.
1: How are you seeing uh, family networks in, like influencing plans across the board coming
0: up? Well, I mean, the family is going to be just as important as ever. In particular, again, going back to the the two things that we didn't cover today, which were Copernican consumer. Which again is if the, the individual is at the center of their own health, that, that relationship with those folks around them is going to be even more important to support that. They're going to be part of that, that kind of universe that orbits them, and as well as constricted consumerism, which I just kind of alluded to with my own dad. My dad going out on the market, that was not a pretty sight you know, more choice, you know, look at this, you get 27 plans. If he didn't have me to help him, he might not have picked the right plan, or he might have just given up or missed the deadline. So I think families are going to be even more important in the future. And I think th- this goes back again to the funnel wars in what gives um, maybe the, those retailers and those tech companies new entrants a bit of an advantage. Because if your culture is a 1000% consumer focused, you almost by definition are going to understand the power of family to that consumer and you're going to try to accommodate that relationship wherever you can. And I don't know that that is necessarily a default on the legacy hospital and health system side. I think you actually see more of it when you get into higher acuity care, though it still could be hit and miss. I've been through this a lot in the last few years. I mean, it really depends on the, the circumstance, the situation, the provider, whether or not they're looping in the family appropriately. But if I had to bet on who's going to do that better, I'm going to bet on Walmart or CVS or Apple, just based on how they think about consumers to start with. So that's the best I got on that one, Chris. I don't think I anything to add. There's a there's a glue that's connecting these uh,
1: these questions and the way that you concluded it on Walmart, CVS, the, the the folks that have the consumer in mind. This really rings with uh, Pierre Vigilance's question, which is with culture not being as easy to purchase as knowledge. Like it's not something that you can buy and just transform the organization like that. How will the, this funnel war impact communities where the healthcare seeking culture? is challenged by historical engagement issues.
0: So historical engagement issues, that could mean a few things, right? That could mean health disparities, that which could take all kinds of, of shapes, right? So being from Minnesota, we have a lot of conversation about rural healthcare, which might play into this, right? And, and in the book, in this chapter, there's a pretty heated debate about whether the disintegration, I don't know if that's the right word, but the, the separation of care Right is a good thing for consumers or the country writ large. Right, we've we've had this conversation since the ACA came forward, which was, hey, continuum of care, integrated care is better, which is something that like the, the CEO of Geisinger argues in the book. He said, no, 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 we don't want you getting care from Walmart and Apple and all these other places. That's really disparate care. That's going to be more harmful for you. It's better if it's all together. Like Ed Geisinger. But the other side, the other folks say like, hey, most health systems can't even integrate care within their own system. The primary care folks don't know what the orthopedics are doing. Orthopedics folks don't know like what happens when you come into the ED. And so there's a really good argument about this. And I think that impacts uh, the question because how is this going to, is this better or worse for rural health care, the funnel wars? Right. Well, in some ways, if this causes a shrinking of legacy health systems, that might be worse. But in other ways, if I can get my primary care option from CVS or from Walgreens, much more likely I'm going to have access to that in a rural community than I would a, a larger system with locations there. So, And then, of course, all of the virtual things that, are, that have come online and hopefully will stay online will help with that. So, so I think it can impact it in different ways. It really just depends on on where it goes. Imagine it's 2030. You're a 40-year-old mother of two living in Dallas, and your cousin keeps telling you to check out the new Liberty Land Clinic that just opened in town. It's focused on providing medical care based on your personal views, not the views of the lamestream medical establishment. The clinic, one of 200 that have sprouted up across the country, is part of Liberty Land Health, a new entree into healthcare backed by billionaire media moguls and venture capitalists that includes 25 acute care hospitals, 100 urgent cares, and more than 5,000 affiliated physicians. It even has its own medical university that produces research supporting such alternative medical approaches as vaccine-free living and ivermectin protocols. Your neighbor is a primary care doctor in a nearby clinic, and he's told you of patients walking out when he recommends proven medical treatments they don't agree with, some of them claiming they're headed to Liberty Land Health. The largest growing group on Facebook is dedicated to contrarian healthcare and has been the primary driver of hostile demonstrations at city council meetings, school board meetings, and hospital board meetings across the country. The group's charter says it's anti-science, anti-expert, anti-CDC, and pro-do-your-own-research. Here in town, a group called Boycott Deep River Hospital has been fairly successful at convincing dozens of formerly long-term patients to switch to Libertyland Health, which better reflects their political views. The organization has been running television ads throughout primetime, featuring spokespeople like Joe Rogan and Jenny McCarthy. Some politicians, such as former Minnesota representative Michelle Bachman, have called for the creation of an entirely separate parallel health system in the U.S., one she says that won't be, quote, beholden to the monsters in D.C., unquote. Welcome to Prediction 4, the rise of health sex. So if this sounds a little out there, know that that last quote is a real quote from Michelle Bachmann, who's a real former representative from my home state. Uh, You may recall her, she's kind of a firebrand when she was in Congress, that she gave it an interview in December. And it was in response to the federal government's uh, proposed vaccine mandates for companies and healthcare organizations. And she called for exactly what we potentially predict here in the book, which is not only just the rise of health sex, which are groups that are oriented around medical views that fit their worldviews, but also the potential rise of providers to meet that group, to serve that group. So think clinics and hospitals, just like the fictional Liberty Land Health, that might crop up, that are focused on that political worldview and serving those people in in the community that believe the same thing.
1: Hello Healthcare is brought to you by Actium Health. Healthcare leaders use Actium CRM intelligence to activate patients and drive meaningful engagement. You can make it simple to identify and predict patient needs by using AI driven next best actions. Learn more at actiumhealth.com. And now back to the show.
0: So this is not a new concept, the idea of politicalization. If you go back and you read news stories from the Spanish flu outbreak in 1918, you'll see stories about the San Francisco Anti-Mask League. And, and politics has shaped uh, healthcare to one degree or another ever since then. But clearly, COVID-19 and the hypercharged political atmosphere we found ourselves in 2020 due to a very very contentious election and then also some of the social justice issues that also happened that same year like the george floyd murder uh, in my own community together has really brought this to a forefront in a way that we've never seen before and from our research and talking to experts likely we'll be having to deal with for some time to come. This isn't necessarily going to get better once COVID fades away. There will be a long-lasting impact of it. We learned last year that the number one way to tell if an individual has been vaccinated by COVID is their political affiliation, not where they live, not their prior vaccination status, not their health status, not their income. Surveys show that the best way to know is to ask whether they voted for a Democrat or Republican. And based on that one question, you're more likely to guess whether they were vaccinated or not than any other question you could ask. The same was proven true at the end of last year and this year with booster shots. So that politicalization of medical choice is still coming through. The book talks about all of the trends that are fueling this from the drop in trust in healthcare experts like the CDC, which has just gone through the floor uh, since the start of the pandemic. A lot of that is, you know, Self-induced pain that the CDC calls themselves. The rise in influencers, like we joke about Joe Rogan, but he's very influential, and obviously most of you know about the controversy he's gotten into around COVID. To social media and the spread of misinformation. You know, we we sent the book to press right before everything came out about Facebook late in the fall from the whistleblower that talked about how Facebook knew that their algorithms was driving misinformation in terms of COVID, but did nothing to stop it because it was also driving engagement and ad revenue. So that's even not even the book. This stuff keeps coming out. And so really we asked the question, how long until we were going to see politically oriented or motivated clinics and organizations come forward? We really, to be honest, if you ask me personally, I'm surprised we haven't seen them already. And this isn't meant to be a political debate. This isn't about what's right or wrong, left or right, red versus blue. This is really to say this is the state of play now and in moving forward. If you're a provider of care, what do you do with this? You know, we talked to so many folks who said we can no longer sit on the fence. When a George Floyd type incident happens, we have to say something. If I'm a health system, not saying something is now saying something, right? You have to say things about the importance of vaccines and social distancing and all of the, you know, accepted medical advice when it comes to public health issues. Yet if you have a portion, in some cases a large portion of the population that disagrees with those things, what happens when they come into your clinic and they argue with you, as we have seen time and time again in the news about COVID treatments? What happens when they have an alternative and they say, you know, screw you, I'm going to go over there. They listen to me over there. And so that to us is the, is the danger. Even if we don't see these alternatives crop up, for C-suites and boards of healthcare providers in particular, this is going to continue to consume oxygen in the room moving forward. It's not going to go away with COVID going away.
1: One thing that these, that, that like this kind of sectarian view of healthcare, where there's a political alignment causing different views and then infrastructure rising, of uh, uh, rising to support those those alternative views of I mean, Like you can see where that takes an already existing bubble and then intensifies it. Like not only within this bubble are there news sources that support you, but now healthcare organizations and systems that that support you as well. So knowing that, that how difficult it is to. Get somebody out of a a part a particular bubble, especially if there's a if there's a just so much misinformation with easy access and access that people can can easily do. What is the response to that kind of growing infrastructure and like growing misinformation? Have you seen anything that that kind of gives hope to? Well, these are some approaches that might be effective.
0: You know, Chris, it's really sad because I don't know that the solutions related to this or any different than the solutions related to the problem at large, right? Politicalization in this country has hit everything, not just healthcare, what cars you drive, what music you listen to, how you watch sports, all of this stuff, right? We, we talked to that in the book. And so when you have folks that are, it's one thing to disagree about somebody protesting at a sports venue. It's another to disagree about the appropriate treatment for a disease. And you would like to think like, well, one is just an opinion and we can have opinions and there's no necessarily right or wrong, even though there, there might be in, in some ways. But I mean, this is the way to treat this disease. Like it's proven in medical science. You would like to think that facts would do it. But we know, we have learned, that facts are actually the sometimes the last thing that you can use to help people see through the bubbles they're in. Because oftentimes when people are presented with facts, they're the opposite of the worldview. It actually gets them to dig deeper into that worldview. It doesn't pull them out of it. It just makes them, you know, they'll dismiss the source. They'll dismiss the, the fact itself. So it's not that, you know, I don't know what the answer is, to be honest with you, because it's, it's something we struggle with beyond just health care. For doctors, for hospitals and health systems who have to deal with this, they've got to figure it out, right? And at some level, as we've seen, you may have to turn people away right if they're arguing with you about your proven treatment that is is what you've benchmarked to be appropriate and they want something different you know you may not be able to deal with them but we see legislation in states across this country right now in Wisconsin Florida and a couple other places that would force providers to follow what the patient wants even if it goes against that provider's own medical expertise so that's how far this is going And
1: uh, David Buckman pointed out that like with like outside of COVID, even like when we focus on things like Planned Parenthood and politicization around that, then it's a very clear line in the sand that's being drawn politically around what kind of care is allowed to be delivered.
0: Yeah. I mean, Texas right now, right, you got the largest pediatric system in the country that had to stop entirely their transgender services because of what's going on in Texas. Like it's impacting providers right now in that way. In my own market in the Twin Cities, we had a story of a hospital that was treating a COVID patient, and you know, he had been on an incubator, he was basically coma and he was being kept alive by the machines. And after a month the hospital says we need to basically pull the plug. It sounds terrible. And the family was arguing, no, give him these other treatments, which the hospital said those aren't going to work. They transferred him to a hospital in Texas, gave him the treatments, the patient died. Who is the family suing? Family suing the first hospital who refused to give the treatment. So this is impacting folks right now.
1: One thing, I'll, I'll, there was a couple that I wanted to address here, which Sandeep uh, Aurora pointed out the, the like the impact that technology can have on in- intensifying these health sects, such as Google like search uh, searches and things like that. Just curious about in your research, did you find anything in terms of how there might be Attempts to limit like where the algorithms take people down YouTube rabbit holes or search and things like that.
0: Well, you know that's it's a huge issue. It was a, it's still a huge issue with Facebook in terms of misinformation, and obviously, you know we've seen alternative platforms arise, social media platforms that are politically oriented. And was it just this weekend? Elon Musk kind of teased the idea that maybe he'll start a social platform. I'm not even sure where that would land politically, to be honest. But I don't know that it's, you know, we can count on tech platforms because there will be, you know, just like we're predicting in healthcare, there will be platforms that grow to serve a political orientation. They're already here. So we certainly can't count on those platforms. And so I don't know. I don't know. You know, when you think about this, we get to the end of this prediction and we thought, well, God, this, how far can this really go? Could you really have a doctor who's going to prescribe things that aren't part of proven medical? you know, accepted medical procedure. And you go, well, who monitors that? Who polices that? It's the health boards, county health boards, state health boards, right? And we had, a, we talked about this in the book, right at the, right when we submitted the copy for the book at the end of last year, there was a doctor who was having his license reviewed in Minnesota because he told, he pediatrician, told all of his families, don't get your kids vaccinated with anything, not just COVID, anything. And so the, the medical board was reviewing his license. You think, oh, okay, so somebody will, Make sure this doesn't go too far. Then you look at how medical boards are formed. In almost every case we found, state, county, there are political appointments. And so you see a story in Idaho where the county where Boise is, where the people that are responsible for building a health board put a physician on the health board of that county that doesn't believe COVID is real. So the health boards may not also be there to save us. You've got stories of health boards in California or counties in California where they're creating a second health board Another health board. Politicians in the area are, are saying, we don't like what this health board is doing, so we're going to create a separate health board. Like what does that even mean? How does that work? But that is the kind of thing that, that potentially is coming. For this prediction, you know, rather than try and imagine the future through the eyes of an individual consumer, we think it's critical to kind of think about this collectively. Throughout the history of the country, a large portion of our population has faced devastating health inequities and disparities communities of color, the poor, the elderly, all have been marginalized in numerous ways. Disease symptoms misunderstood, downplayed or ignored, sparse access to quality care, discrimination, inhumane treatment, over indexed health issues, a worse quality of life, bankruptcies, shorter lifespans. The events of the last two years stemming from both COVID-19 pandemic and social justice issues have brought these issues under the microscope and the case of COVID-19 exacerbated them. As we know, these issues are systemic and not easily addressed. But worse, as we look forward a decade, we see these issues deepening thanks to other equally significant challenges. For example, the growing healthcare affordability crisis. According to one study, while the middle class spends 19 to 23% of their income on healthcare, the poor spend 34%. The aging of the population, By the year 2030, there will be more grandparents in the United States than grandchildren. The growing digital and technology gap. For example, one study showed that for those below the poverty level, only 24% own a smartphone. And finally, climate change, maybe the biggest threat of them all. Research shows that Medicare and Medicaid patients shoulder a hugely disproportionate share of climate-sensitive illness costs. All these issues are worrisome in their own right, but they also have one thing in common, they have an outsized impact on those who already face health inequities and disparities. Without some unforeseen dramatic change of events, the road ahead is not a positive one in terms of the health gap in the United States. Welcome to Prediction 5, Disparity Dystopia. So one of the cool things I got to do as part of this book was interview a, a like sixth cousin of mine. His name's Marco Bevelo from Italy, lives in the Netherlands. He's led an amazing life. He led brand at Philips. He has studied health systems. He has, he's a lecturer. He's just, he's just an incredible person. And he had some amazing insights to share. But this quote, I think, is why maybe we took a little bit of a skeptical view, not a little bit, a deeply skeptical view of where the health gap is going to go in this country. And that is, from his perspective in studying health systems across the world, in particular Europe and the United States, said the health system you have is basically a reflection of the society you have. And the one thing about the United States is we have a society that's built on individualism. We have a society that's built on, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's why we're one of the major societies that doesn't have advanced societies, that doesn't have socialized medicine because there's a huge proportion of our population that thinks that's just a terrible idea. And so the things that make us great as a country, to be honest, also are why we see some of the things we see with our health system. And unless we can address things at a systemic level, that's where we're really kind of discouraged about where things could go, right? Again, this isn't new. We're not talking about something that's a new concept. Clearly, COVID-19 has made things worse and also shown a light on it, as I mentioned. What was really sad and frightening to us was those other dynamics I mentioned coming forward and really shaping the future of this health gap in a worse way, not a better way, right? And we talk about it in terms of the haves and the haves-nots. Uh, the very first prediction, which we didn't cover again today, the Copernican consumer, it shows this amazing world. As a consumer you have all of these things kind of at your beck and call with your health but that's going to be great for the haves what if you can't afford an apple watch what if you can't afford you know the right internet service know the, the have nots are going to be less you know have less access to all those amazing things that make the copernican consumer what well, is great and, the, and at the same time so while the haves are going to have it better the have nots are going to have it worse. So that gap is widening in both ways. And so, of course, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of entities that are trying to work to solve this, some big, some small, across the spectrum of healthcare and beyond, federal governments, state governments, payers, providers. But from the research we did, from the experts we talked to, without some kind of moonshot-like effort, it's going to be really hard to solve for the health disparities and inequities that we're facing in a meaningful way in the coming decade.
1: So Alexis Jet came had an interesting question about when we look further than the uh, the outreach side and dem- demographic side and look at what the actual like what's going on at the provider level. Are providers trusting and believing when people who are minorities or people who are women like when when they have certain healthcare conditions? What's the idea on addressing provider like bias all the way down to that provider,
0: physician, and clinician level? Uh, huge. It's a huge issue. We document that in the book. I don't think it's probably news to most people. We, we give enough resources in case somebody was wondering whether that's an issue. It's such a big issue. And, and that is really difficult to solve for. I mean, there's a few things that come to mind. You know, women facing health, uh, heart issues, acute heart issues have historically been misdiagnosed, have been brushed off and like, oh, you're just feeling stress, take some aspirin, you'll be fine, lay down, missing really you know, heart attacks, stroke potential, just because as soon as they walk in the room, they're perceived in a different way just because of their gender. Clearly people of color face this and continue to face it systemically. That is a huge, by itself, if we could just focus on fixing that, even though it's just one dimension of this, Again, the book goes into depth about how that impacts so many different people and in, in, in so many different ways. So all of that is hundred percent part of this, but there's a lot more to it as well. So, so yeah, that is a big part of this that has to be solved for for sure. And
1: uh, yeah, to add on to that is when we, well, like, when providers or when people in the healthcare system make decisions on what types of care people should receive, like if if someone is believed to have that heart condition and they, they then go on to a proper diagnosis and things like that. That's reflected in the data. If that person is ignored, then that's something that we don't have. Like From a data perspective, you lose the opportunity to address. So it hurts on more angles than just one. That By missing out on that one patient, it, re- it remo- that reduces the likelihood that, uh, that others will be seen as well because it's, it's, it's data that's not being reflected properly. An- another question that came in Sandeep Aurora, this was, I, I thought, a good one because we were talking about, well, hey, it will take some major moonshots to address a lot of these, dispa- these healthcare disparity issues that, that we're looking at. So Sundeep's question was, well, what does a moonshot look like?
0: I mean, honestly, we're talking about socialized medicine some kind. We're talking about, as an example, as maybe the best example, the easiest to understand, right? Something that we see in, in Western European countries because there's so many people that struggle to access care to pay for care alone, it's going to have to be something like that. Which is partly why we're really like skeptical of that. Because if you know you look around today, the odds of something like that coming to pass are you know it was the first thing shuttered when ACA was debated. Like, well, we're not going to have a public option, not even just a public option, right? Let alone single-payer kind of thing. And, and it's not necessarily socialized across the board, but even single-payer would count as a, as a moonshot. Bringing Medicare to, Medicare to all would be a moonshot because it would clear up so much access partially, right? It doesn't solve for everything. And it's interesting, in the book, we had uh, one of the people weighing in on this. He said, you know, when you look around the world, the very thing that we do to solve for inequity often drives greater inequity. So he pointed to socialized medicine, like the systems in Canada, or you know, the Scandinavian countries. And this is also, my, my cousin Marco spoke to this. He's like, here, here in the Netherlands, we have government covered care, but we have a second tier, like exists in all the other countries, right? Who gets access to the second tier? The people who have money, right? So even though we have now given access to everybody, we have created another inequity, Got money, you're going to get better care by definition, right? You're going to get faster access, better access. But at least the people that can't get to it now will have it. So it's going to have to be something like that. But again, I don't remember what the polling is, but there's a a significant, it's not the majority, but it's somewhere between 35, 45% of the people don't believe that healthcare is a right in this country right now. Don't believe you should have a right to healthcare, right? They just think like, hey, you're on your own. You should build yourself up, get a job, get insurance. You can't. That's not my problem. And so that's the kind of thing that I saw a comment in the chat like, hey, this feels like a, a reflection of wealth inequity. Yeah, there's wealth inequity in our country because of who our country is. And that's why we have inequities uh, to a large degree in healthcare, too.
1: Pierre asked about this growing interest in patients owning and controlling their data. Do you see a relationship there between patient ownership of data? and uh, healthcare disparity dystopia.
0: Yeah, and it's probably a, a negative association or relationship. And by that, I mean, I think there's huge opportunity in patient ownership and management of their health data, if that can be made accessible and understandable and private and secure and all the things that need to happen. For those people that are able to leverage that, it's going to be fantastic. In some ways, exacerbates the disparities we already see. Like I mentioned, the digital divide, right? If you're going to own and leverage your own data, you got to have great access to it. You got to have high speed internet, you've got to have a mobile, you know, you got to have a, a smartphone or something that data has to be, you know, leveraged fairly, which systems right now aren't set up fairly for a lot of communities. So it has the potential to solve some of this. But maybe it's just because it's you know mid afternoon and it's been a while since I have coffee and so I'm I'm ha- I have a negative outlook right now. But but I would think that the more we see that, the more we might see more of that gap. It goes back to the haves and the have-nots. And so, yeah, I don't know that that will necessarily help this problem. It could be part of the solution, but we shouldn't look to it on its own as okay, that's going to move the ball for the have-nots. Thank you for that. And I wanted to highlight a comment from Marilyn Joyner about
1: the expectation that not-for-profit health systems might have to shoulder like a disproportionate amount of the cost that uh, that for-profit health systems don't under the, uh, the current system. I wanted to f- finalize it with uh, a question from Charles Sanders, which was that if we're in a situation where the majority of Americans don't believe that systemic racism is going to be difficult to deal with for for healthcare inequities. How does that paint the picture for, like one, one thing you pointed out was that healthcare is, that Marco Bevelo said that it was that healthcare is kind of a societal mindset and things like that. So how does the, the picture point out with with like uh, with the majority of Americans having a, a lax attitude towards racism? How do you see that impacting this healthcare disparity dystopia that you outlined?
0: Well, I mean, it definitely has an, an impact Chris, you and I haven't had great conversations on this, but, but I'm sure we could, you know, there's racism on an individual level, which may or may not impact it. It's the systemic racism where this is gonna play a role, right? So systems that have this built in inherently and how that will sometimes overtly, but a lot of times in an invisible way, impact this kind of thing. That's part of what we need to root out and solve for. We can't even have those conversations. I mean, literally, in some states, you're not allowed to have these conversations in certain circumstances. And so that's also frustrating. We feel it feels like we're going backwards and even being able to discuss this stuff. It took how many years for us to finally be in a place where we could allow the CDC to, to study the impact of guns on health care in this country? Right? That just came about this year or last year. Forever it was, preve- it was prevented, couldn't do it. How is that even possible? How can we not like, have a scientific review of something that causes so much harm to people's health? Guns rights are not. Like, it's not even about that. We couldn't even have the conversation. So I think I'm less concerned about the movement we need to make in society to move people to a better place when it comes to things like racism and other inequities than I am about the systemic side of it and, and how it influences our institutions. Erica had
1: the, the, Erica Johansson had the idea on do NFTs potentially provide a way for patients to monetize their, their healthcare data? Like, there, there is an argument there on like, the technical disparity, but curious on, on your thoughts on NFTs or, or other ways that patients can monetize their own data.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we touch on this a little bit in the current consumer. It's less NFTs to me. It's more blockchain. And it may not come out in the form of an FT as we know it today. Maybe it does. But that's kind of the spirit of Web3 too, right? Is that, hey, it's my data. I should own it. I should benefit from it. I'll let whoever I want leverage it. So I think the potential is there. But Chris, I'm like, I know enough to be dangerous on Web3 and crypto and NFTs. And so... My initial thought on a lot of this is especially Web 3, boy, it sure seems like this is just gonna it's just gonna be a different organization, um, still platforms dominating this just like it is in Web you know, 2.0 with, with Facebook and Twitter monetizing our content and our data. I love the utopian vision of Web3, but ironically enough, I kind of lean toward the CEO of Twitter's take on it, Jack Jack Dempsey, when he said, You guys, it's gonna be the same. <laughs> it's gonna be different platforms but you're still going to have the same kind of centralized power. You have to. I'm a little skeptical to see that side of it, but I do think the potential is there. Wouldn't it be great? I mean, geez, I have so much. I could retire right now, Chris, if I could monetize my health data. I got so much of it, right? People would love to get their hands on my health data. So I think there's potential in that, whether it's blockchain or not, NFT or not. With that,
1: I'm excited, Chris, that you had this conversation with us. I'm glad that you're open to presenting the future as you research it, rather than trying to paint a rosy picture where it's not necessarily rosy yet. It opens the opportunity for conversations like this, thinkers like the people that were on this call to figure out, well, hey, what, what can my role be in helping to address or solve this issue? I know that that sounded like a bleak way to end it. But the truth is that if we don't make the right decisions right now, then the future will be bleak. However, to quote one of my favorite data scientists, Kathy O'Neill, to predict the future is to cause the future. So part of this is in your hands now. What can you do or build or support in order to make Chris's predictions wrong? So let us know your thoughts and are there any predictions that we missed? And until we see you next time, hello. Thanks again for tuning into Hello Healthcare. If you like what you heard, we appreciate a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You and your feedback fuel us. This conversation is brought to you by Actium Health. To get the latest on what these healthcare leaders are saying, subscribe to our newsletter on HelloHealthcare.com or join us for our weekly sessions on LinkedIn. Thanks, and when we see you next time, hello.